Welcome to Jamie's Corner Podcast. This is a show where we talk about veganism, spirituality, animal rights, friends, family, struggles. I don't know. I kind of use this as my own therapy session, you know, just talking things through, really. So let's have some fun. I interview a lot of different activists, yogis, nutritionists. We got some doctors on here, veterinarians. You name it, just a lot of really great people. So thanks for joining me. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. In all of these different scenarios, you change your farming practice. These are the increased outputs. This is the kind of environmental impact. And this is the commercial impact. It's up, 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 you know, and and the more examples of that we can have, the bigger the case becomes for, for us to prove the point and then also raise the capital from, from the institutions to, to deploy the capital in the farms as the transition capital. What the hell is up? Today I have Omaid Hawazi on the podcast and he is the founder of Refarm Fund. We are going to talk all about transitioning animal agriculture farmers to plant-based farms. We're going to get into why this needs to be done, what the problem is from the environment to the farmers actually not making much money from their business models either, all the way to the solution and what Refarm Fund is doing to make the world a better place. So without further ado, thanks for listening, guys. Go check out It's Jamie's Corner on Instagram as well as It's Jamie Logan. Without further ado, here we go. Omaid, thank you so much for coming on the Jamie's Corner podcast. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Jamie. It's such a pleasure to have you because I think that what you're doing at Refarm Fund is the future. I think that we really need to start transitioning animal agriculture farms to plant-based farms immediately. Uh, it's, it's certainly, there's a kind of a, a massive requirement, a massive opportunity, and there's different dimensions to it and if i'm honest it's kind of happening in different ways but it ain't it's not happening fast enough yeah and in this podcast guys we're going to talk all about why we need to do this we're going to talk about what the problem is and really break down what animal agriculture is doing to our planet from everything from the co2 that animal agriculture emits from the land usage to the water usage and also what farmers are going through as well. They're not actually making a profit anymore. And so for their own sake, we want to transition them as well. And so we're going to present to you the solution today. And the solution is Refarm Fund. And we're going to talk all about what they're doing and how we can achieve these goals. So Omid, why don't you just, for those people that don't know you, introduce yourself. Who are you? I grew up in the UK, but I was born in Iraq. Uh, I'm 53 years old. I guess uh, my, my journey is I, I've worked in advertising, digital marketing. I set up a few agencies over the years um, and I worked on some uh, lots and lots of emerging tech. And I, I guess when I kind of think about what I've done, I, I really like creating, uh, but also I like the way that emerging tech, new tech can enable new things to happen. So... I guess the way I'd put it is sometimes you, um, you know, tech tech adds uh, very little value, but if you find the right way to apply it in a certain place, it can create whole new opportunities and a whole new market. 
But don't get me wrong. I don't. I. 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 I love tech, but I also know that tech sometimes is uh, has a negative impact as, as well as a positive one. But I, I'm. I'm particularly curious with all the things I've done about working out what different kinds of tech enable and different experiences and products and and business models. Wow. So you've definitely had real world experience. And why don't you talk a little bit about how you're transitioning that real world experience into one of your other passions of over 30 years of animal rights, veganism, environment rights. How did that whole journey come about? I became vegan when I was about 24. <clears throat> so uh, uh, before people knew what you were talking about, I, I had become vegetarian when I was about 13. I was a kind of a, you know, I didn't like meat for some reason, not sure why. It, it wasn't to do with uh, animal justice, if I'm honest. It was just, I just thought there was something wrong with it. Um, so I just pushed that away. And, and like many people, I thought vegetarianism was, was a kind of a nice, good thing to do. And when I was about 24, there were um, there in the UK, there was a load of uh, protests from not not from vegans, but from regular folk about live exports of calves to France. Um, and when I realized what, that those calves were the male calves of dairy cows, I, uh, I dropped dairy uh, overnight. You know, I didn't know. I mean, it's I guess that's something that certainly, you know, more people know about, but you you didn't know about it then. Oh, and that is, I mean, one of the most horrific things. I mean, to see these babies on the truck literally headed to the slaughterhouse just born a few weeks ago. It's unbelievable how most people, when they see that, don't just immediately drop it. Um, well, well let, let me explain a little about veal. So these were veal crates. So, 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 that, so they weren't going to the slaughterhouse. They were going to France to sit in the crate for six weeks before they were slaughtered. And, and that was the interesting thing. The people protesting weren't vegans. They were people who loved animals, who, who were meat eaters. So that was a bit incongruous, didn't make sense, but it brought, drew attention to me. To me. Um, and, and actually over the years, I, you know, I've been hugely committed to veganism and my, my uh, various, I, I've got three daughters and two of the three of them have, have been involved in uh, various activism. And if I'm honest, I think that I was so inspired by them. I, I was thinking, well, what could I do to enable kind of the transition beyond you know, making myself available for direct activism as well, uh, you know, and, and this project came a bit out of trying to kind of, let's say, enable uh, progress um, as, uh, in addition to raising the issues. And collectively, it's also important. And I think that that's brilliant because while we have people on the ground doing grassroots things, we also need people behind the scenes that really work on transitioning these farms, also on legislation and working on, you know, all different types of situations within the movement, whether it's a focus on the environment, whether it's a focus on dairy, whether it's a focus on fur, I think being strategic is really what's going to help us win. So, and thank you for clarifying the um, dairy, the dairy situation. It is, these animals have to sit in crates by themselves without their mothers for weeks before they're killed. And it is really, really horrific. And there is that cognitive dissonance, I think, with a lot of people where they love animals. And then when it comes to what they're eating or drinking or wearing, they just somehow forget about that animal um, that had to suffer. So it is very interesting. But that's why we're going to go behind the scenes like you're doing and make changes whether they like it or not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, what, so let's really start to break down this problem. Beyond the animal rights aspects of it, 
what is animal agriculture doing to our planet? Let's really take it in steps. I know that it, this is a really complex topic and it's not black and white, but let's just try to understand what's actually happening in these industries. The way into getting a lot of people on board is is to talk to the bigger picture about the issues around, let's say, animal agriculture generally, but obviously in particular, uh, intense animal agriculture, you know, uh, high scale um, factory farming and all of the things around that. And frankly, also any kind of agriculture that is done at, at that kind of industrial scale. And, the, you know, but if you focus back on animal agriculture, it, it actually produces globally 14 percent of uh, carbon dioxide emissions, which is, you know, actually enormous. It's bigger than other industries, which are highlighted to us as the issue. It just doesn't get talked about because it's a very difficult topic. You know, people are very used to how they eat. There's lots of vested interests in industry. You know, there's the status quo. The other issue around it is that if you if you take all of the land that's committed globally to grazing and then also the land that's committed to growing crops for those animals because they graze, but also you have to feed them too, it takes up that takes up something like 50 percent of all of the land available globally. So it, it, it's, it's less than 50 percent if you include desert and ice. But if you remove desert and ice, which you can't do anything else with, it's it's literally 50 percent. So even even without any of the other issues, if you think about us using that kind of amount of land and feeding people in that kind of way with a growing global population, it does not scale. There isn't enough land available. You can't do it. And so, you know, there just becomes a structural issue where it doesn't matter if you're a vegan or if you're not a vegan. You just look at it and it doesn't work. So you, uh, and that's where you start to get consensus around there's a need to, to move things forward. There are, other, there are other elements of the way that the industry works uh, to do with um, how uh, farmers are rewarded and how the business of farming is funded. And the issue is that I think globally, we've kind of got addicted to cheap food and the way that farmers are rewarded with state government subsidies in, in most, um, let's say, uh, developed in, uh, countries. Um, and then that goes through its scale to supermarkets where they focus on it being cheap. It means there's not much money left in the mix for for the farmers. And so actually, you know, unless you are one of these kind of nasty industrial farmers, whether you're, you know, animal agriculture or not, it's very, very difficult to scrape a living. And so when you talk about these industrialized farmers, talk a little bit about the tax dollars that go to them in order for them to survive. When I came up with this thought about where, finding a problem that I could use my experience in, in marketing and advertising and business model innovation, which I mentioned before, I, I did a piece of work. I commissioned a piece of research from a, from a, you might call them a land economy strategy company. They're people who understand the financials, the business of farming. And I was shocked when they gave me the various numbers because for, for many, many, for dairy and for, for, for beef and, and so on. If you look at the turnover of the farmer, the farmer, it's, it's over half of the turnover is, is subsidies. What kind of business is that where half of your business is paid for by the state? You know, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, and so if you take that away, they immediately fall over or the, the amount that people pay for the output um, has to go up, you know. And so it's this kind of weird scenario that, that we're in where, 
you know, the, the, the state kind of uh, props up these industries because it, it thinks that's the right thing to do, you know, and actually a lot of this started after the Second World War, but, but it's kind of got to come to an end, really. It's, it's, it's no good way to do things. So the problem also is it really is that even if people are not buying these products, the farmers are still being paid to produce it. Well, so there is, there is some kind of... Uh, sorry, Jamie. Sorry, Jamie. It's Do not you want a to capitalist economy. Well, I mean, so there, there's, a, there's a bizarre thing where you get some landowners who actually buy land and don't, and don't farm anything because they just take the subsidies. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, I, I'm, so I, I can see that's there and I can see it's a problem. I'm, I'm not campaigning against that. That, that. That's work for someone else. But I can see how the farmers who uh, receive those subsidies would prefer to to be able to kind of actually create a living on their own uh, and you know stand on their own two feet and you know that that that's definitely in my mind um, with um, Refarm Fund. The the other the other thing that's um, that's happening, which is a is a positive, is in some instances those subsidies are shifting. Um, and I think, you know, it's a great thing that they're shifting towards activities which are which are uh, more beneficial for the, the planet and the environment. Uh, but again, that's very, very slow. Right, right. That makes sense. And so I just want to hit the, this land argument a little harder because a lot of the pushback that I get when talking to non-vegans is that the land that is used to graze cattle is not arable or some a lot of it is not arable to grow crops for human cons- consumption talk a little bit about that so so i don't i don't know about the land in every country but certainly where i am in the uk and where we're focused to start with the land more or less all used to be forest so uh, the the idea that you can only grow gla- grass on on in a particular place is, is a nonsense it's just the way that we've shaped the land around us over the last thousand, two thousand years, however long it's been since we cut down the forests and and started, uh, let's say, farming, uh, formal farming, longer than two thousand years, and so invariably, what 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 happens is, well, I mean, put it this way: if you take that huge amount of land that's given over to animal agriculture and reduce it significantly, um, then you obviously, one, you need to increase the amount of land put over to cereals and you know the other things that we eat in some mix um, one might argue that the percentage of the land that's used to grow cereal crops for for animals uh, you could just take those crops and feed them to, to human animals rather than um, you know other animals and so you end up with a load of land that's spare so what do you do with it well actually you can deploy it for the for the purpose uh, positive support of the planet through rewilding you, you reduce the amount of grazing land, which is obviously a huge amount of the land uh, globally, and, and the same is true in every country, including the UK. Then if you take some of the land that's used to grow cereals for those, for those, um, you know, those animals and feed them to human animals, then what's left potentially just could be rewilded to some great extent, um, which again uh, drives biodiversity, carbon capture, um, and loads and loads of good stuff. Um, and actually, when, when I was talking about earlier, talking about the shift in those subsidies. Well, certainly in the UK, uh, some of the grants and subsidies are shifting in the direction of tree planting and biodiversity. And um, actually it's a, it's a commercial opportunity, which to, to its credit, the state is starting to kind of um, incentivize, but again, not fast enough. 
exactly. It is not happening fast enough. Absolutely. And, you know, you think about these farmers in these particular situations, chicken farmers that go into these coops with thousands and thousands of birds, how stinky, smelly, disease-ridden it is, and they have to cull the sick birds, which for those of you listening that don't know what that is, basically they beat them to death before they even reach the slaughterhouse because they are sick or diseased and then they just throw their bodies out. A lot of these birds, I mean, many birds don't even make it to the slaughterhouse because they're so sick. And then you have antibiotics in these farms. When you look at the stories of these farmers, you would think it would be a lot more pleasant to just farm mushrooms. Yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing is, um, I, uh, all the farmers I've met, you know, they're, they're, they're proud folk. You know, rightly so. Is you know they they don't want to hurt animals. It's just that that's what they're used to. That's what they that that's what their tradition is. You know, and you know I don't think anyone any of the ones I've met are evil particularly. It's just that they they're in a certain mindset. So it's very much around you know how do you kind of introduce these ideas and then how do you give them what they need to be able to make transitions. Now, part of it is to do with expertise, you know, like, uh, you know, if you change things, will it go wrong? How do you still have a high yield of an output? How do you still have a business running your farm? And then there's a degree of making the finances work so that, you know, if there is a commercial risk, how do you help them kind of manage that so that that they can feel confident about moving forwards? And and actually what, what we found in some of our research and we're doing more at the moment is that that um, making that what we call transition capital available, either in the form of loans or equity investments, uh, is, is, is the missing piece of the puzzle. Okay. Can you talk, what, what exactly is that? Um, and where are these finances coming from? Who's funding this? So the structure that we're assembling it, on one side has farmers uh, and it's assisting farmers with the uh, expertise into regenerative farming, uh, much more sustainable rotation-based arable, reducing or removing any kind of chemical inputs, so pesticides and um, chemical fertilizers. Yeah, and then at, on one side, it, it, it's the enablement of that. So, uh, and and actually, there's a data play there as well to do with them kind of understanding the pot- potential yields, plotting that out. There's a whole industry, and we're form- we've, uh, we're forming a partnership with a a partner in, in land management software so that you kind of plot out your fields and you kind of blog what they do and and you know and actually when you start to do that on the, on the farming side you have much more insight as to what you've achieved the state of your land what the yield will be and so on and and actually that's a key part of of, of quantifying carbon capture which you can do through these processes which again is a commercial opportunity you know you certify the carbon credits and then they become something that, that that's sold uh, so that's another revenue that's on one side. The other side is we, we, we are establishing an alternative investment fund, UK-based fund, uh, which will take capital from ESG-focused institutions. And this is, the, this is the trick, is that actually you've got these huge funds, which are t- typically pension funds, you know, big commercial entities. They're the guys who traditionally invest in the kind of stocks, you know, the high-growth stocks, try and get a big return so people can get their kind of, you know, Uh, lots of money for their retirement and so on more and more people are ticking the box when they uh, when they talk about the what they want their assets to be invested in they're ticking the esg box environmental societal and governmental 
support box so that they want to have a positive impact with their, their money. And the issue is that there isn't enough stocks available. There isn't enough assets available for those funds to, to go into. And so what we're promising them is land is not a huge high return. It's not like 100x, whatever. It's 6%, 8%, but it's really solid. It doesn't go anywhere. The kind of long-term trend is it kind of increases in value over time because limited supply. We already talked about how the, the fact that we're using it up. And what we can do through the practices that we're implementing is, is talk to its carbon positive impact and its biodiversity positive impact um, using the practices that we're, let's say, attaching to the capital. Like the farmers, are, you know, the farmers get the money in exchange in a way or to fund this, the transition in this direction. And the one thing I'll mention, like, like notice I haven't used the word vegan at all in the conversation. That's, right. very, that, that's very deliberate. The biggest way that the farmers can leap forwards in moving towards regenerative agriculture that's carbon positive is removal of animals. So there's 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 some grey areas, if I'm honest, where where sometimes farmers like to have some animals to, you know, to fertilise the land, whatever. The, our argument is if you maximise that, you end up with zero animals and you end up with, you know, very very fertile land by by using the right cover crops uh, and so on, which which rot down and, and, and enhance the land and kind of create the, all the organisms and worms and stuff that you need, which is, which is what happens, what you have to do to kind of make the land produce, produce huge amounts of output, you know, and it takes a number of years, which is why, there's, why there is a risk as they transition. Um, but, when it, when, but when it's done, the land, you know, basically for the, for the inputs, so the, the labour inputs um, and the seeds that you plant, produces much more output based on the investment so the capital that you invest in you get a bigger percentage output compared with the other the, the other forms of farming and this was the point at the beginning of my journey where I like I, I talked about it a little bit before let me say a little more on it where I had this idea I had this idea before and I talked with these uh, guys who who are, that, that, who are kind of farming experts but strategic farming experts and I said give me these scenarios and what was interesting was that if even if you compare say high intensity arable with rotation based arable with with no with no fertilizers no inputs the amount of output you get per hectare on the rotation based is smaller you get less tomatoes you get less cabbages but the amount of uh, profit you get is higher the, the, you know because because if you take out the cost of the chemical fertilizers the uh, pesticides and all of the labor in plowing the land and all of that then actually you end up with a higher margin and, and you're, you're regenerating the ground as you go. So why do they use all these chemical fertilizers and pesticides? Um, I, I think, again, post the Second World War, a whole industry built around that that's kind of addicted farmers on, onto doing it. Um, that, that's one side. The other side is I, I think uh, it's the fault of the supermarkets where the supermarkets don't want to deal with smaller farmers with, with, with you know with, with, with less yields they want to have less contracts fewer contracts with with bigger farmers who produce a huge amount of output and the way that you do that is by the practice that's already there a again uh, refarm fund isn't trying to fix that piece of the problem but you know but that that's the direction of travel that, that we need to go in where there's lots of smaller units I mean the reality is if you do a rotation base you don't like if you have a monoculture, so it's all cabbages and all, or, or all lettuces or whatever, then you can have this kind of constant output. If you do uh, at a high at a certain level, if you take your farm and do a rotation, then that immediately reduces the amount you get of each crop each year. So um, 
you know, you just need to structure that kind of uh, route from the farm to the supermarket in a different way where they're willing and open to aggregate the outputs of different farmers because each farmer will get less of each crop. Um, and so that's another piece of the puzzle that needs to be fixed that uh, we're not trying to fix that. But 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 um, let's put it this way. I think as the, as the supermarkets uh, in, uh, embrace environmental impact more and more, it, it, they'll realize that that actually they'll have to, they'll, you know, they'll have to come on the journey with us. So if I understand correctly, you're saying that you're starting by tackling the smaller local farmers that are not necessarily the big industrialized commercial guys, but you're tackling them, having them transition their small animal farms to plant farms, whether it be cabbage, whether it be mushrooms. I want to also talk a little bit about what those crops are. And then are yeah. you saying um, once they're transitioned, we can work on trying to get them into the supermarkets? Like what exactly is that process? Am I understanding right or not? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, as we start, the the the, um, the outputs won't be enough to get a big contract with a national supermarket. But as we get to scale, we'll be able to sign up those those, those contracts. Um, if I'm honest, I think those big guys will will change when the landscape changes and the point we're making, which is why Refund Fund, in a sense, is activism, is it's kind of saying you can do this at scale and it makes money. So why the hell aren't you doing it? You know, um, and I, I guess that's what's in my mind and why I'm so passionate about getting 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 the thing going is that particular point is it's talking about, you know, it's proving that there's a better way to do it. You know, that, that that's the point. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's amazing. I think that this is definitely a huge aspect of what we need to be doing. Somebody's got to do it right. I don't know how to transition these farms. I mean, I think even speaking to farmers and not mentioning the word vegan is a talent in itself. And so I do want to talk a little bit about what is it like when you first approach these farmers? So uh, some some of the conversations, so the, the, the consultant, you know, I mentioned that consultancy. So uh, at some point in the process, I said to the guy, you can see what you can see what we're trying to do here. Um, what, and I said, what's your background? He said, I'm, I'm the son of a dairy farmer. I said, so why aren't you doing that? He said, well, I wanted to do more different things, you know, and actually dairies, you know, you don't get any time off. Just the nature of the cows, you're looking after them all the time. You can't have a second job. It's just a very, you know, it's, it's a very intense thing, more than more than more than cows for for uh, for meat and, 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 you know, those other other animals. And uh, so I said to him, OK, so you can see what I'm doing here. You see what we're doing here. What do you think about this? You know, and uh, he said, well, if you don't do this, someone else will. At which point I thought, right, let's go, you know, let's get this, let's get this thing going. Because if somebody who does, isn't coming at it from the same angle is look, coming at it from a commercial farming industrial ind industry point of view thinks this is a really good thing. And actually, you know, it's going to happen. Then let's get on. Even if we don't become the big players, which I, I have no ambitions particularly to do that. But if we make the point to shift the industry in that direction, then that's enough as far as I'm concerned. I think that's huge. And so what kind of crops are you thinking of growing on this land? Well, okay. So um, the advice I had so far is, is actually the, the, the kind of core in, in a sustainable rotation would be stuff like oats, peas and, and beans around kind of the right kind of rotations, which can do uh, carbon capture. I, I, for what it's worth, I, I'm reading the narrative around peas 
the peas aren't cool that actually I think um, peas there isn't enough peas in the world and actually I think there's going to be a huge opportunity to grow peas if you uh, I, I always kind of remind uh, meat-eating friends about the fact that the world's biggest and most successful bodybuilders uh, seem to be uh, live on pea protein so if you want big big muscles um, and actually I, th I think the amount of protein in per volume in peas is on a par with uh, beef um, you know not far off it's around that so you know I, it, it's those kinds of things I guess it's kind of the staples that you'd have as you know a, any kind of good uh, plant-based diet but but I'm not close-minded to be honest with you I think that's a whole world of opportunity that, that, that but but for me that would be the core is uh, that kind of core nutritious plant-based food yeah I mean there's millions of plants people just farm the same three you know animals and eat them and kill them so we can we'll figure that out for sure <laughs> and so when the farmer then agrees to have their farm transitioned do you have somebody come and scope out the land like we were talking a little bit about that before how does that work where do the animals go the, in any case, the tra transition is something that would happen over time. And remembering, it depends if the farm is, is the incumbent farmer is, is, is changing their practice. And it might be, for instance, what they do is half of it gets transitioned and then the other half get transitioned and it happens over time. And, you know, there's kind of gray areas on the journey. And while, you know, I have a view on that, like any vegan would, um, I, I think it's uh, better to be going in that direction than not going in that direction. That, that, that's my, let's say, that, that's the only way I can kind of rationalise it in my mind. Well, that's a good way to rationalise it in my mind. What we'd be offering them is, is input into that expertise about how to plan things out, the software platform to, to plot the farm and to kind of discuss the transition and then the kind of necessary capital to de-risk it and, and move things in that direction. The capital would also be available for, for other things as well. Um, so renewable energy projects, projects that other aspects which allow the yields to go up. So at the very basic level, heated polytunnels, you know, just the kind of plastic polytunnels so that you extend the growing season. And then also the energy, you know, the diff different kinds of energy projects you need to, to, to get the heat uh, without paying for electricity, you know, whether that be from, you know, uh, you know actual renewable energy projects or, or or, or the various um, ways of getting heat from the ground. So, so it's it's a mixture of of those things that took the commercial risk and then also investment on, on some of this um, this, this other, other other machinery or stuff that's needed to kind of to to innovate uh, going forwards. And that's not even getting into the stuff that where there's a load of headroom of stuff that's emerging, um, which maybe we'll kind of talk about now, where. Yeah. There is a whole industry, as you, you, you'll know about or you've you heard of, around vertical farming, you know, to high intensity farming, um, particularly if there are, there, there's um, the opportunity to create new renewable energy on, on the land. And so that that removes the cost of energy for, you know, vertical farming requires light and heat and so on. But the real the real headroom, and this is what I'd love to happen, is is to create the crops. Uh, as the inputs into precision fermentation bacterial processes. And the idea, I mean, one of the things that I realized that isn't actually in the farmer's interest is that, that they, they create raw materials. And then those raw materials go to other, they're sold on. So sometimes they, we eat them directly, so they're cucumbers, but actually quite often the raw materials like oats or whatever go into some other um, company who then 
does something with it, processes it in some way, and then create, and then maybe it gets processed again, and then someone turns it into a product, and then it's sold. Each stage, they're making money. And so what's on my mind is why wouldn't a farmer do as much of that as possible to make the most money on their land? Yeah, what, why couldn't you? I mean, and say say we, we didn't build a, you know, say say there was a precision fermentation partner that came in, and it might be that we don't have the the equipment on every farm, but say we had it on one of the farms and then various farms, which are part of Refarm Fund, contribute the raw materials into that. Then, then, then it gets processed, not by a third party business, but actually by the farmers ab, or ab, ab, you know, like us, and then it's sold on. Then that, that's a significant kind of increase in the profitability of the farming practice because, you know, you kind of, it always surprises me that, that the person on the end who takes all the raw materials and sticks them in a can and then sells the can makes more money than everyone else. It's ridiculous, you know. Um, it seems to be the case in so many industries around food production that that you know it'd be very interesting to kind of fix that. But but just to get back to it, I, I, I do. I, it's 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 increasing the yield of the, you know, the kind of base farming around you know, regenerative agriculture and rotation based, um, low input or no input farming which kind of gets bigger margins and, and, and bigger yields once once the transitions happen it's the it's innovating adding adding, adding equipment to increase yields it's uh, and that may include re renewable energy of course with renewable energy if you do it at scale then that's a profit stream in itself because you you sell the electricity back to the um, back to the grid in the country you're in um, and then it's embracing the other things that are happening, which are maybe a little further away to scale around vertical farming, particularly where we can supply the energy and then this huge area of precision fermentation. If I'm honest, I, I, I've got huge hopes of precision fermentation. Now, I, I wouldn't eat it. Like if, if they're replicating kind of the protein from cow's milk, I would call it, it would make me ill. So I would eat it anyway. But actually, if people want to eat that, then good for them. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, personally, I feel great off of a plant-based diet as well. I would not eat cell-based meat or lab-grown milk or whatever it is. But I think for the people that are eating meat three times a day and drinking animal breast milk and cheese and whatever, I think then that, that's great that now they can have whatever products they want and nobody gets hurt for it, right? Yeah. So you bring up all of these really incredible technological advanced farming practices like the vertical farming, like precision fermentation. It's very complicated. And me being from New York City, really don't have much experience on a farm. What exactly, can you break it down for those of us that don't understand? So like with a vertical farm, for example, do you have a building? Is it where, you know, you put tomatoes in there and you plant them? Are people tending to this? Is it robots? What is it? And how does that work? So it's, so it's an industry that's coming. It's not here yet. But the idea is that you can, you, you, so it, it conflicts a bit with the whole idea of regenerative farming, which is all about kind of, you know, making the, uh, you know, making the earth really fertile, loads of microbes and worms. Instead, what it does is it, you know, you take you take buildings that you may already have on the farm that used to, you know, have animals in, you know, and so you redeploy the buildings. And that, the whole process, uh, it, as long as you have a, a supply of energy, so electricity supply, what you can do is is grow uh, different kinds of vegetables at, uh, uh, you know, very efficiently using 
they're, they're not grown in earth they're grown in they're, or, or they're grown in let's say different substrates not 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 earth from from the ground but or, or they're grown in water with the right inputs to maximize and the right light and the right heat to maximize the yield and the reason it's, it's vertical is because quite often the units are stacked on top of each other so for the amount of ground space you might have you know 10 plants or 20 plants or 100 plants you know how high it stacks up and that, so so it's 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 kind of factory in a sense so it's not very natural but it's it's an interesting kind of thing to look at let's say uh, and potentially uh you know if you're looking at kind of balancing the activities on the land then may then why not if it fits in um with with you know the farmer having labor available then why not deploy it in a different way and and do that right that makes sense to me for sure. And I think also I just read that in China they opened up a pig farm that's actually stacked in a building, which they're processing over a million pigs, I think it was, yeah. a year. One, one of the interesting stats for the UK, to go a bit vegan for a moment, is that on an annual basis, they, the, the UK um, people eat a billion chickens just for one country. And that's 65, 67 million people. Now, people can't believe it's that many chickens. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about all that. But, you know, let, let, let's just say it's a kind of a, a different space to what we're talking about. The other area that you might ask about is precision fermentation. And, and that, that's even less developed than vertical farming, but actually potentially has so much more impact. So people think, oh, that's really weird. You're going to eat something that's been grown by bacteria. Of course, they already do. You know, beer is grown by bacteria. Um, uh, cheese, uh, if you you know, traditionally is grown by bacteria. Yogurt, you know, um, it, and and loads of stuff like that. It's very, it, it's actually very normal for us to do that. So what they do is they genetically modify uh, bacteria so that the you put something in, you put some raw material in that might be with yogurt. It's it's uh, it's milk, and then it, it acts on it, and then the thing you get something out, which is yogurt, and then you eat it. With, with precision fermentation, you put something else in, you put some other thing in, it might be some kind of solution of oats or whatever it is, uh, or barley, and the, the, the bacteria acts on it, but the bacteria has been genetically modified to produce a particular protein. And, um, and that those are different products. So, you know, they're already people at scale producing, you know, milk as if it was, uh, or the cells as if it came from a cow and so on. And so you end up this, the thing in the end, that's kind of the same thing, uh, but uh, as, as what a, car, a cow would produce for a calf, but, um, but, but obviously in huge vats. So again, you have to factor in the space for the vats, uh, the um, energy requirements and so on. But, but, it, but it, you know, it's looking like it's going to be a huge industry and much, much more efficient. I'll put it this way, it's much more efficient than, than, than uh, having loads of cows. So in terms of the uh, amount of effort to, to get the cows to the point when you can milk them and so on. It, it's, you know, for economically, it's much more efficient. And then obviously there's a, the animal uh, justice argument, which goes without saying that it doesn't involve harming any animals. So, you know, it, it, it's enormous uh, potential and already starting. Precision fermentation is, is happening in, in lots and lots of different countries. And there's a, it's a high growth area. There's lots of investment going into it, you know, particularly in Finland, but, but in different countries. And so I've got my eye on it as, as, as a way of, let's say, adding value to, the, to, to what the farmers do by, like I said earlier, potentially processing the outputs more so that the farmer gets more uh, return for their, for their efforts. It's amazing. And just to give an example of a farm that 
has done this. There's a program. It's called Rancher Advocacy Program by Rowdy Girl Sanctuary. And they've actually already started transitioning some of these farms here in the U.S., to mushroom farms, I think is what they transitioned the chicken farm to. And you hear these amazing stories from these farmers who felt that they were stuck in their ways because this is how they were raised. It was a generational thing and they hated doing it. You know, it was a lot of work and it was, I think, just a really tough physically, probably emotionally charged job too. And then when this rancher advocacy program came about, there were these two farmers, uh, I think most recently that they just worked with where they actually transitioned this farm and they have nothing but good things to say. They're like, we're actually able to step into a beautifully smelling, amazing mushroom farm that there's no sickness and death around and they're making money and, and doing really well. So it just goes to show how profitable and, and needed this is. I mean, uh, yeah, certainly, and, and mushrooms are a high-value product. You know, um, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's a great thing to do. I don't, I'm not sure you need that much space to grow them. So I, I'm curious to know how they're using the land, if they, depending on what they're transitioning from. But it, but it's a great thing. Um, you know, uh, obviously, really tasty uh, and very desirable product. So, all, all, you know, it's great they've got it to work. Yeah, I mean, from what I saw, they had a lot of chickens, thousands and thousands of chickens in a shed and they had multiple sheds. And so they basically just took these buildings and redid them to grow mushrooms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, so that's a perfect use of the, of the, um, of, of those buildings. I mean, the, the other, the other things that farmers can do depending on the location of the farm is, is do things like um, add value through tourism you know, um, particularly if you've got something that's a bit of a sanctuary, um, then then it can be very attractive uh, during whatever period you have uh, in, in transitioning. Uh, and certainly in the UK, people really, um, you know, enjoy kind of visiting and farmers. They call it glamping because uh, what they do is they, they either give them a place to stay in, in the farmhouse, farm buildings, or, or they put up these uh, these tents, which are quite luxury tents. And sometimes they even have uh, they, they even have hot tubs and stuff like that. So it's quite, you know, it's quite a nice holiday. But usually that's in, in farmland. So, it, you know, there, there's lots of things they can do. to, let's say, to kind of use the land in different different ways that uh, economically kind of uh, viable. And my, my point is this is that it's kind of the stuff I'm talking about is already happening. It's just that it could accelerate more. You know, some farmers are quite open minded. I mean, let, let, let me say about. You know some some conversations I've had with farmers where they 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 reacted in the way you said, which is I know you know it's my tradition. I know what I'm doing. Don't tell me what to do. What do you know? And I was like, well, okay, I understand. You know better than me. I'm not a farmer. You know, I'm a guy with an idea. And um and but then I say, what if what if actually you could make more money? <laughs> and all of a sudden they want to talk again. You know, and it's like, um, what what if you've been thinking about this, but you're you, you, you've not been doing it because you're not quite sure if you'll make a mistake and you're not quite sure you've got the cash flow or whatever that, and when we solve that for you then the, you know actually that they're very very interested to talk more you know and so i take this whole thing as, as a way of supporting farmers in transitioning it's not about let's say challenging what they do front on it's kind of just kind of leading you know helping lead in a, in a particular direction that's you know, good for the planet, good good for the industry, and obviously um, much better for 
uh, non-human animal friends. Yes, yes. I really, I think this is the future and I'm so excited to see where Refarm Fund goes and, you know, what type of transitions that you guys do. And I think your approach is, is brilliant. I think we have to reach people where we can. And by speaking to these farmers, the way that you're speaking to them, where a lot of them are charged by the profit, right? They want the profit. So I think that that is um, really, really awesome. And I guess just to sort of like wrap things up, I'm, I'm curious. So you said that you have three daughters and they're also all vegan and activists. And so can you talk a little bit about how veganism has benefited you, how it's affected your relationships, being that you have three kids that are vegan, you're very lucky. My family is not vegan, unfortunately. So yeah, talk about them. What are they? What are some things that they're doing, and what are they up to? It's it's interesting actually. Cause when 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 you have kids, you um they eat what you feed them. Yeah. Um, and so you kind of let's say you, you dictate and control what they eat because that's they eat what you feed them. And uh, I, you know, it, for me, it was there was no question that actually you could bring up kids really healthily on a vegan diet. Needless to say, all three of them. Uh, rebelled to some extent at some point uh, and and then for a short period of time and then really they kind of chose it themselves I think that, that that's very very exciting how they discovered it again for themselves really now if I was to talk about the rest of my family so the older members of my family and whatever they, they, they listen but they, they, they haven't shifted you know well they've, they've shifted a, on a balanced basis and my mum has uh, has created all the dishes from the Middle East that have meat in, but without, you know, okay. and, um, you know, and so on. But their, their, their habits are, are quite uh, deeply ingrained. Yeah. Um, I, I would say that um, different people have different routes through it. So, you know, so I, let's, let's just say that Refund Fund is, is um, uh, some of what I do in, in terms of how I talk to people about it is about, education and about enablement i think there is a place for pointing things out but but actually um an awareness let's say of the issues but it makes most people extremely uncomfortable and that's the purpose i don't have a problem with that it's just that you kind of need to coordinate these things so that you help people kind of transition their behavior over time that that, that that's certainly kind of my mindset of it but yeah i mean i have friends who aren't vegans who sit there and eat their you know animals in front of me and um they uh, and I, we'll, we'll talk about it uh, but they'll carry on you know and i'm i'm not gonna i'm not gonna not have friends if you know what i mean you kind of have yeah. to live in the world you're in like you know as you're describing and it's a process isn't it you know like how, how do you feel about that kind of stuff jamie it's the hardest part of this journey is dealing with people I find it's not the food, it's not, you know, finding clothing that doesn't have wool or leather or fur, like that's not hard. You know, what's hard is the interpersonal relationships and being a vegan in a non-vegan world. It's you find yourself at weddings, you find yourself at parties, you find yourself in situations where all your friends are having a Friendsgiving and you're not invited, that kind of thing. And so dealing and figuring out how to navigate it. Like, is it wrong for me to sit at the table if I'm, you know, preaching all the time how we shouldn't be harming animals? Should I sit at the table where there's animal products? Should I not? Like, it's navigating these unprecedented situations. 
where I don't, we don't really know what the right thing is, but I think just trying to be strategic in whatever ways we can. I, I do film work and education through that. And it's just, again, it's not, it doesn't feel like it's happening fast enough. And so it, it can be lonely, you know, it can be really hard. So I, I go to some dinners, you know, some corporate stuff or whatever. And um, I've noticed over the years, as I've kind of talked to the caterers, they now know what a vegan is. And, and while the vegan option might have been rubbish a few years ago, it's, it's, not, it's quite often quite good now and, and so on. And they'll understand that vegan is different to vegetarian uh, and, and so on. But what I will say is one of the dinners I went to last year, uh, the default menu was vegan. And you had to choose the animal option as an alternative. Wow. And I th- and I thought that's really cool. And you know, um, and because it kind of makes the point that if you don't choose, then you get vegan. And uh, they called it plant-based, you know, because uh, uh, as, as I was saying earlier, vegan is quite a loaded word, certainly in the UK. Um, and I guess that's the kind of way forward. In terms of how it's benefited me, well, as I say, I'm I'm a bit old. But I've got, I've got, I, I don't think I've had more energy since my twenties, if I'm honest. Um, you know, I'm, um, you know, I, I don't need to sleep that much. I do recharge on occasion, but you know, I'm kind of constantly doing stuff. Um, very, very driven, and and actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure that it, uh, quite a bit of it is down to my diet. You know, I don't have wrinkles either, mm-hmm. um, which I think helps, uh, even though I'm 53. Oh, that's amazing. There are so many benefits to going vegan to plant-based. It's endless. And I feel the same way. I went vegan about five years ago and never felt better. I mean, from your skin to your digestion, just also to feeling more connected to the world around you, I find is, is a big part of it too. So was there anything else we missed? I, I guess the one other question that I would have is, how long would it usually take to transition one of these farms? And what is your plan for the next five years? If, you know, everything goes to as planned, what is the plan for a refarm fund? Right, right. So I would, I would say that if, if, you, if you look at the kind of broad regenerative agriculture uh, structure, the, the wisdom is it takes about five years to get the earth into that kind of amazing state where the output is... Uh, you know, exponentially higher because the 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 ground is so fertile. Um, I I from the from the work I've done we've done so far, or the, let's say the kind of research we've done so far, um, the the let's say the financial benefits can be sooner than that, partly because of taking the costs out. If I'm honest, you know, in terms of the you know the costs we talked to earlier, um, I would say that what we're doing at the moment. Um, uh, in terms of 2023 is that this quarter we're continuing to build up the business case and, and the partnerships. Now, one thing that I'd have if anyone's listening who is 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 on a farm that's transitioning or is, is friendly with farmers who are transitioning or are interested in transitioning is that we need as much data as we can. Uh, we have a template for it. So very happy if people reach out via refarm.fund to um, uh, to connect on that and that's that's our focus this quarter is to establish the, an extremely strong robust business case um, around it because frankly if it doesn't make more money 
it won't scale. And, you know, I kind of care about it scaling. I don't want to do one farm. I don't want to get, I don't want to make a nice film and, you know, it's, it's all, it's all lovely, whatever, but it's one farm and it's not that big. I want loads of farms and I want a lot of land over time. So we're kind of baking in a scalable business case. Uh, what we'll do after that is, is, is build out the actual kind of the alternative investment fund structure, which will, you know, if things go to plan, it will be done by the summer. Um, and that will be the stage where we'll be ready to start looking at proof of concept um, uh, farms. So either either we'll, we'll be able to raise some money um, and start equity investment, actually buy buy a farm and run it, or work with farmers uh, and provide the capital for them to to transition. And we kind of got this dual model where, where we'll do both. Either way, uh, that's the timescale. Now, over the course of five years, I, I would hope from a UK point of view, if if we got, if, you know, if it worked really, really well, we might get up to say half a percent, 0.5 percent of the UK farmland. And considering that that sounds like not a lot, but actually that's that's a that's a huge fund. That would be a kind of a a, a huge institutional fund if it if it was that if it was that big. Um, and the point that my point is that if we got to that scale, that that would be enough for this really strong message to say this is scalable, it's commercially viable. And um, why aren't you doing it to to the rest of the industry? Um, I don't know if the land ownership is the same in other countries, but in the UK, because of the history of the UK, quite a lot of land is owned by very few um, entities. So it's it's the church, it's it's the 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 the, the, um, <laughs> the royalty, um, Oxford and Cambridge colleges, um, aristocratic people, old money, let's say. Um, and so that land is never bought and sold. It, you know, it's just rented to farmers, so it's never available. And really what we'll be doing is, is working with smaller farmers who actually they may be tenants on that land and they, that, that's where we loan them money to transition. Or it may be that they're, they're farmers who where the land becomes available for whatever reason it's sold. And we would potentially purchase the land and kind of grow our, grow our kind of, let's say, our portfolio um, that way. But the, but the point about it is to get as much land as possible to kind of transition uh, in the direction we've talked about uh, over that kind of time frame. The other thing is, of course, there's interest in um, people always talking to us about other countries too. The, the one the one thing I say is that's really interesting, but we have to look at the specific opportunities in in the different countries based around, um, uh, you know, the principles I've said. In that, it, you know, if it doesn't if it doesn't make more money, if you don't work out how to do it financially viably, then it just becomes a drain on resources and. That it, it's doing good, but it just doesn't scale. And part of what we're trying to do is build this so that it can be a, a kind of a significant contributor, let's say. And how can my audience and those people that are listening support you? Uh, or how can they do better in their own personal lives today, just based on what we talked about? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, p- people already on plant-based diets are kind of moving in that direction. Um, uh, I, I would say... The, the main the main thing that that, that refund fund needs right now is is these case studies that I talked to earlier like if 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 we get 10 it's great if we get 50 it's unquestionable and um, the more we can get either UK based or frankly uh, US or it it doesn't really matter at this stage because the point when we're kind of making the case to say in all of these different scenarios you change your farming practice these are the increased outputs. This is the kind of environmental impact, and this is the commercial impact. It's up, up, up. You know, and and 
the, the more the more examples of that we can have, the bigger the case becomes for, for us to prove the point and then also um, raise the capital from, from the institutions to, to deploy the capital in the farms as the transition capital. So that, that's the single most important thing. You're going to get there. I know you will. 50 farms by the end of the summer. <laughs> Let's make uh, it happen. We have to. We don't have a choice. This planet doesn't have a choice. So it's happening. Uh, we'll we, we, we definitely make it. We'll definitely make a mark this year. Uh, whether we get to 50 farms, we'll see. Um, but but we, we definitely uh, put it this way. It, the 50 farms aren't aren't equity investments, but are, are transition capital. Then I could see that happening. Um, but, you know, there's, there's lots of different dimensions to it. But yes, it, like, like, like the guy said earlier, like this, this has to, you know, if we don't do it, someone else will. This is this is going to happen. It's just that nobody has, as far as I know, has quite thought of a way of putting all these things together that are happening already and then and then and then building scale into it. You know, and that, that, that's the key of what we're trying to do here. Right. Where it's also profitable. Yeah. It, it seems to make sense for everyone. So please, guys, go visit refarm.fund and you can see more information on Omade's website. There's also some facts and evidence on there where you can go and look at just the numbers. We were talking about 14% of CO2 is produced from animal agriculture, how 50% of usable land is used from animal agriculture. There's all these numbers and all these facts on the website. Please go check it, check it out. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Jamie. It's been really great talking to you. And uh, maybe our paths across in person before too long, either in the UK or when I'm over in New York. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I will be here. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.